As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm ready to read it, so let's go get it. <laughs> what I'm hearing is let's go to the bookstore, always down. <laughs> <laughs> hey, readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 155. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, we've had many guests of the English major variety on What Should I Read Next? But today's guest asked me to bridge the divide between an imaginative fiction lover and a science nonfiction lover. Ashley and Brent are a father-daughter reading duo who share an Audible account and a love for an untold story. Since we recorded this episode, I got to meet Ashley in person at the Story Shop, which was a delight. If you don't usually visit the show notes, make an exception this week so you can see the photo of Ashley and Brent with their books, you can find that at what should I read next podcast.com slash 155. Today, we're covering everything from Ashley's mega popular most hated book, how the two of them make reading a family affair, and the story of who stole those audible credits. Let's get to it. Ashley and Brent, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. Oh, thank you. This is a milestone. You are our first father and daughter guests. Oh, yay. <laughs> Unique. I don't know what you got into here. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to hear a little about your all's experience reading together. Well, Audible is, is kind of the uniting force here. So he has a two-hour commute every day. And I started noticing that he was listening to my books on my Audible account. <laughs> and I was like, who is using, who is listening to this? So, yeah, so that I read a lot of fiction and he started listening to it just because what else are you going to do in two hours? And then he started using my credits and... And it was like, oh, wait, hold on. We got to fight for these now. Yes. Uh, There's some science things here that I know I didn't pick. <laughs> <laughs> At least you knew what to get him for his birthday. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Brent, what do you do that you're driving two hours every day? Uh, it's the place I work at. It's about an, an hour's drive from where I live. And I am a structural mechanical engineer. And so just for the drive, it's, you know, I have to be there at seven o'clock. And so I'm up and going and it's like, what do you do for an hour when you drive the same path for 30 years? <laughs> <laughs> Ashley, when do you listen to your audiobooks? Uh, well, I only have a 10 minute commute. So I listen while I'm in the shower in the morning and while I'm getting ready and just kind of in the, in the brief ride that I have to work. Uh, if I'm at the gym or you know, mowing the yard or something, that, that's when I listen to it. 
it's definitely in much shorter blocks than my dad. So your dad is listening to the kind of books that you don't choose. And yet it sounds like you all do like to discuss what you read. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it started because he was just listening to whatever I had chosen. And I guess he got a little bolder and wanted to start using my credits for his own taste. But uh, but then it kind of the reverse happened. He was picking books that I had not listened to. And he was like, oh, you need to listen to this. And I was like, oh, oh wow. OK, I will. Like, listen, look at you reading fiction. And because of that, I'm kind of like listening to some of the things that he's listening to or he'll put a book in my hand. And I'm like, OK, I think I can get into this. So it's definitely I think both of us are trying new things for the first time. Brent, do you remember what you started listening to that Ashley chose? Oh, I believe it had to be the Harry Potter series. Uh, Of course, (laughs) with her growing up, uh, her and her friends, everybody was reading Harry Potter. And I was like, nah, I'm not doing this. Uh, And finally, after seeing a couple of the movies here and there, and, you know, the movies were were good. And I said, well, I'll give the the Audible a chance and listen to the actual storyline. So, you know, they were quite good. But I've got a slant for more uh, nonfiction, science, uh, history historical-based science. So as, as she said, with the Audible account, I started looking at what was available and said, oh, this one looks good. Click. <laughs> Let's go for that. When he told me that he read Harry Potter, I was, are you serious? <laughs> Hold on a minute. There are seven of them and here all of them are at once. And I like totally fangirled and was just like, yay, someone else to talk about Harry Potter with. And it was like <laughs> the best moment of my entire life. <laughs> you can cover a lot of ground in two hours a day, even on 700 page books. Yes, quite a bit. Ashley, what was the science book that you listened to because your dad downloaded it? The, uh, I'm totally blanking. Dad, the flu book, the influenza, which I think the is great, what, the great influenza. The great influenza. Okay. Yep. So I listened to the great influenza, um, which is just like a history of how kind of viruses can spread so rapidly. So it contained a lot of the history, which I find fascinating, but to kind of learn about virology and how, how it can just like totally change and I believe also you listened to uh, The Disappearing Spoon. I'm going to admit I only listened to part of it before I got antsy and switched back to fiction. But yeah, so ah. The Disappearing Spoon <laughs> kind of takes a lot of the different elements on the periodic table and kind of gives the history of those. So he talks about how they tracked Lois and Clark's expeditions, how they knew exactly where they were was because of the mercury in the soil from some of the medicines that they were taking. It was a really kind of cool science, history, all together in one cool little package. When do you all discuss these books? Do you call each other at 6.30 in the morning? Do you have family dinner once a week? How does it work? Um, We text back and forth a ton. And then if we eat dinner together, it's usually like arguing. (laughs) (laughs) What's more fun, fiction or science? And we still don't believe each other when we say our our preferences. Well, that keeps things lively, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah, we spend a lot of time together um, with my parents. And, you know, we're actually going camping this weekend together. Uh, or are staying in cabins that are right next door to each other. So I've got a giant stack of books that I'm bringing that I'm sure he'll wrinkle his nose at. But <laughs> <laughs> Or maybe he'll steal one. I don't know. Or who knows? So. That's right. <laughs> I've got some good ones. I hope he does. <laughs> well, I would love to jump right into the book since we get to talk about so many today. You all know how this works. You are each going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and the title you're reading now. And we will talk about your specific request was books that you can read and talk about together. Ashley, do you want to go first? 
Yeah, absolutely. So my first book is actually one that my dad listened to first, and then he told me I should listen to it, uh, Watership Down by Richard Adams. I have been, I listened to it in January, and I've been just walking around saying Harudadu ever since. <laughs> um, that's one of the rabbit words. I'm obsessed with everything about this book. It is beautifully written, and the characters are amazing. I mean, it's just about a family of rabbits and their journey to find a new rabbit home. So it doesn't sound like it should be so good, but it's just absolutely amazing. And I think it's actually going to be my next next literary tattoo, um, which is like the marker of real success for me. But it's just beautiful. And the relationships in the book are beautiful. And the themes it explores, it's just so, so rich and powerful and beautiful. And it just sticks with you so well. You said your next literary tattoo. (laughs) Yeah. So I have, I have two tattoos. One is my first tattoo ever was actually kind of math science based. It's the Delta signal. And I have that because I was visiting my dad in his office. I was in college while he was teaching at the same college. So I would visit his office hours sometimes. And he was looking at my chucks, which had, you know, C.S. Lewis quotes and scribbles all over them. He's like, what have you done to your shoes? So he grabbed one of my shoes and he wrote a math formula on it right on the top and <laughs> delta in math and science represents change in so that's my first tattoo my second tattoo is actually hermione granger's wand harry potter i adore it so much and hermione what an amazing character she is so i i needed her i needed her with me all the time so that's my first literary tattoo and i think my third one it's probably going to be about hazel uh from watership down we may have to check back with you later Uh, I'd be happy to share. Absolutely. (laughs) Ashley, what's another favorite? House of the Seven Gables by Nathaniel Hawthorne. And I love this one half because it's just a really, really great book and half because I read it because I knew I was going to Salem and I wanted to visit all of the Nathaniel Hawthorne sites. So I read it and then went to Salem and saw where Hawthorne worked at the Custom House and saw where his three and fourth time great-grandfathers are buried. His three times great-grandfather was a judge at the Salem Witch Trials. And he had a lot of guilt about that, which really heavily influences the book. So to be in the place where he was living and working and writing just really cemented my love for this book even more. The book is really just kind of moody and the weight of history and the weight of family legacy plays in so heavy of it, but it's just a very like kind of moody. You can really feel the season and feel the place and feel all the characters and their lives really strongly. And we know your third is a change of pace. It is a change of pace. I put it on my Christmas list two years ago and I got it. And I was like, I don't know if I'm going to like this, but it's I Contain Multitudes, The Microbes Within Us and A Grander View of Life by Ed Young. It's nonfiction. Every nonfiction book has to have that colon in the title for some reason. So it makes it like a really, really crazy long title. But this was nonfiction that read to me like a really fascinating podcast or a show on NPR where it's factual and very well researched, but very conversational and engaging. The tone kind of reminded me of Mary Roach's books, who's another science writer that I really like. But it's all about microbes and bacteria and how they've totally shaped our entire life and this thing that is so small that you can't see it and you don't ever really think about it. But without them, we'd be dead in a minute because of germs, basically. Basically, every other page is dog-eared and underlined because of some fascinating tidbit that I learned from this book. Oh, that's a good sign. Yeah. (laughs) Brent, tell me about a book you love. 
The Glass Universe, How the Ladies of the Harvard Observatory Took Measure of the Stars by Dava Sobel. I think I first saw this book, actually, I believe we were in Oxford. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, that sounds right. Square Books. And, and Square Books and saw that and, and read the jacket and said, you know, this is, this will be a good read. Uh, so what I liked about the book is it's, it's historical and describes how the early beginnings of astronomy in the late 1800s, 1900s here in this country were used. Uh, the women, the wives, and hired persons that actually, many of them worked in the household to actually do a lot of the monotonous physical labor of actually taking the photographs that they would do during the night and physically take the measurements off the glass plates, you know, because they didn't have digital film, obviously, in that time. And they would painstakingly make these measurements and do the computations to determine star positions and star movements. Uh, you know, just over weeks, days, months, and years. Kind of hinges back to recognition of women in STEM-based professions, especially in this country, late 40s, 50s, and 60s. You know, having seen movies and read a couple of those books about the women in the NASA, early NASA days, you know, I was fascinated by the book and, and what the history of how things were done back in that time frame because obviously we didn't have computers. We didn't have the digital imaging capabilities we have today. And it's like, wow, this was just fascinating how all this was done. So that's one of them. Another one I re have really enjoyed was uh, The Great Influenza, the epic story of the deadliest plague in history by John Barry, which like Ashley described with her book with the microbes, talks about the, the great influenza pandemic we had in the early 1900s. And so the book starts out, you know, describing the flu virus and obviously how we didn't know anything about it at the time and was how it was traced back to actually some army encampments back in the early 1900s and just how the virus spread uh, and how the body reacts to that and then how the, the flu virus then mutates and progresses. So th that, was, that was really fascinating to hear medical science for a while. <laughs> Is medical science not your go-to pick in the realm of science nonfiction? Uh, no, it's not. It, it's not. I, I gravitate uh, toward engineering topics, not so much in the medical field, obviously, since I'm not a, a medical doctor. But things like this have fascinated me that how little we knew in the medical profession in those times, the same way with surgeries and with, uh, like Ashley's book in the microbes, how we, we didn't even know microbes existed. Uh, you go back to the Civil War, battlefields and medical practice, and there was no antiseptics. There was no washing of hands and clean rooms. It was roll up the sleeves and get to it. So it's that aspect of, of learning through science in the profession of what's taken place through the years and how, how educated we've become in this relatively short time span. Mm -hmm. That's what attracts me to that genre, if I could call it that. We'll call it that today. <laughs> <laughs> and that's medical sciences is kind of the, if, if that's my in, that's what I'm, I actually started off college as a biology major and I only lasted a year and a half before I was like, um, no, let me go back to my books. <laughs> um, but biology and that is, I gravitate more toward that than my dad's kind of like physics and engineering and math based stuff because numbers are hard. Brent, what's another book you love? Uh, actually, one I read probably 30 years ago or, or more. 
the making of the atomic bomb by Richard Rhodes. I work for uh, an organization who deals with uh, nuclear materials. And this book, when I first started working for this organization, uh, was recommended as, as a read to get a to get a history of how this nation has come to use nuclear materials uh, with military applications. And this book, again, was nonfiction. It's historical based, but it walked through each of the key figures and personalities that were instrumental in the development of the atomic bomb, starting with the late 1800s uh, with how the scientists and chemists were dealing and grappling with atomic structure in in discovering atomic structure. So that's what was fascinating about that book and then proceeded on to with uh, two bombs in in Japan in, in World War II. I love how this was assigned reading. Yes, it was. Even though you're not uh, an English major. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. But but it right, and and I think that's probably was one of the the first books that was you know again not a non technical book per se. Uh, You know, wasn't heat transfer, wasn't fluid flow that you just sat down and I was just gravitated by it and found out I couldn't I couldn't put it down. I just kept reading and reading and got through it and just remember being totally fascinated by it. Have you read this, Ashley? I have not, but I kind of want to now. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't assign this at your place of employment? Yeah, no, no, I do nonprofit work, so absolutely not. (laughs) It's not nonprofit nuclear work? No, (laughs) not at all. Okay, we're going to shift gears in choosing books for you all. It's very helpful to hear what doesn't work for you. Ashley, tell me about a book that you did not love. Okay, so I hate, and I will say hate, The Help by Catherine Stockett. I have some guesses. Yeah, tell me about it. I read it when it right when it came out and everyone was like, this book is amazing. I love it so much. And I like I would see it on the shelf and it would send me into a rage. And my, like my friends would mention it and I would just go off all around a bad book. I don't think it's well written. The characters are like mildly interesting. But basically, I hate this book because it's a it's a white woman writing about a white woman who's saving a whole community of black women. And that is a, so problematic to me on so many levels. I don't think the book portrays the reality of living in Jim Crow South. Like, I just, I can't even reasonably suspend disbelief on how, like, nice and neat that this book is. I think the author of this book, or at least through her narrator, she's telling the story about the South that white people might want to hear or might can be comfortable hearing, but it's not at all the realities of what it would have been like to be a black woman in the South. And I just think there are black women telling this story better and we should give them their space and not fill it with untruths and dangerous untruths at that. Got it. <laughs> yeah, I still kind of rage. Um, like I went you're, to you're a, in good I, company on everything you just said. <laughs> Roxane Gay hates this book and Bell Hooks hates this book. So I feel like I'm in good company with people that like are smarter than me who also hate this book. <laughs> Brent, what's a book that wasn't for you? Not one in particular per se, but I, I, I really got tired of the Tom Clancy series. <laughs> Back, you know, 30 plus years ago, uh, I started reading uh, his novels. One in particular, Red Storm Rising, was very similar to my mission when I was in the uh, U.S. Army Reserves back in that time frame. 
you know, so I gravitated to the book and just, you know, I couldn't put them down. And every time one came out, I read it and read it, read several of his series. And then it's just like one day it just says, you know what? I'm tired of this. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've had enough, you know. So now, even now, more have come out, even some where they have been, authorship is picked up where he's left off. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, nah, nah, forget it. That's not for me anymore. I got other stuff to read that, uh, to me, is much better. What are you all reading right now? I am reading my way through my Halloween, autumn, to-be-read list, which is basically a lot of fairy tales and ghost stories and a lot of historical fiction set in colonial New England. So right now I am reading I, Tituba, Black Witch of Salem by Maurice Conde, which is historical fiction about the only black slave who was tried in the Salem Witch Trials. And it's loosely based in kind of like the historical realities of the time, but it's it's told as a memoir, her first person perspective. And I'm really, really enjoying it. It reminds me a lot of Toni Morrison's novels, like kind of in the tone of it. And a weird connection that I just learned, like in prepping for the show, is that Nathaniel Hawthorne's great, great, great grandfather questioned Tituba in the Salem Witch Trials. And now I'm reading this historical fiction. So that's kind of, it's really, really cool to put really? that together. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. And I did not plan that. It was like, I honest to God, just learned it last night. Do you have this creepy fall fiction list every year or is this a first time thing? Um, I'm really bad about following through on TBRs usually, but Halloween is my favorite holiday and I love the fall so much that, so yeah, I tend to do read a lot of like ghost stories and historical fiction set in New England in the fall. I guess the fall is associated with New England for me because every fall when you started school, that's what you learned about first was the the colonists. But yeah, I do have a list pretty much every year that I work through and have some favorites that I read every single year. And then I try to add some new ones in too. So if I want literary Halloween decoration ideas, are you the one to talk to? Um, I can definitely help you make some bats (laughs) out of book pages. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's fun. I got books I don't mind tearing up. There you go. I'm, I'm sorry. Everybody's dying right now. No, I'm, I'm a huge fan of tearing up books too. I mean, if they're not going to be read anymore and if there's something like The Help where they weren't good to begin anyway, <laughs> let's, let's tear them up. <laughs> let's use them. <laughs> Brent, what are you reading right now? Tuxedo Park, colon, a Wall Street tycoon <laughs> in the secret palace of science that changed the course of World War II by Jeanette Conant. How'd you come to that book? Your daughter gave it to you. Well, true, true. But I had had already seen the book, I think through Goodreads, I think is how I first saw the book and, you know, read the, read the jacket on it and, and said, yeah, I want to read this. And then, then Ashley got it for me. Uh, and I'm about halfway through it, you know, so which which is really good. But again, this is another book that's about this uh, this individual, Loomis, who came from a wealthy family, made millions in stock market and banking. But the guy was at heart a physicist and a uh, inventor. This book is leading or describing the events that led to him being able to set up his own personal uh, science lab uh, at, at his estate and how he was able to bring in the renowned scientists of the world uh, and physicists of the world at the time. Uh, and it's leading up to the inventions he uh made and contributed to one of them, which is uh, radar, which is, again, as the book implies, as a major outcome for determining the course of World War II. Interesting. When it comes to having interesting books to discuss, are there any topics or common threads you found produce really interesting discussions that'll really make you want to pick up the phone and 
text your dad or your daughter or uh, schedule a dinner sooner rather than later? Um, for me, when he's reading books about women in science, women in the STEM fields, that's like an easy way for me to be interested in it. Yeah, I'm like flag carrying feminist. He, my dad would not say that he is, but he's definitely been reading a lot about women for to not call himself a feminist. So yeah, so that's an easy way in for me. And if there's a historical thread too, and it's not just like straight science or straight, you know, physics, if there's like a historical context that can be given, that's an easy way for me to be interested as well. There's a lot to choose from these days. There is. I'm so excited about that. Hidden figures had a lot to do with that. And I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. Like it used to be, we went to the bookstore, you know, like when I was a kid, 20 years ago, my dad would immediately have to go to the very far back corner of the store to find something that he found interesting. And meanwhile, I was like at the new releases table at the very front. And I had a million shelves to choose from and he would have like one shelf, maybe two if it was a good bookstore. Maybe. So, maybe. <laughs> so I'm really glad that's changed. I'm really glad that that now on the new releases table, there's nonfiction about women and people of color right there next to like your standard new release that's being pushed really hard. It's really great to have all that choice right there um, at the beginning. It's very popular. Brent, as someone who works in the field and who's been reading science books for years, do you have any theories as to what's causing the real explosion in popularity here? I, I think it's just the, the realization of the contribution that women has have made in the field that has just been plainly ignored. <laughs> We at the site I work at, you know, we have historical photos and, of course, there's women there and you can see them doing certain jobs, but it was never talked about. And I think with the current society today, with with the push of STEM and I'll say continuation uh, or advancement of feminism after all these years, I think we're just at a time where things have just culminated and it's become more popular and people are realizing, hey, there there was a very significant contribution that's been made in, in, in several fields. I know that when it comes to describing books, publishers and readers love the phrase untold story. And it does seem that there are a whole lot of untold stories about women that have come out in the last 10 years. That's really interesting. Agreed. Very much so. I'm here for it. <laughs> <laughs> you Yay. and millions of readers, which is exciting to see. My my favorite local bookstore, I got to give a shout out to the Book Tavern um, in downtown Augusta. The, the owners do a really great job. Like they have just a section that's completely like when you walk in, it's here's all the science and technology new releases. And it's just like that's just become a permanent fixture of their store. And I'm really proud that that's there. And I, I think a lot of stores are doing similar things. And I'm, I'm really, really happy about it. More than one shelf in the back corner. Exactly. Way more than one shelf. (laughs) All right. Here's what I'm looking for. Books that will bridge the divide between the English major fiction lover and the nonfiction science reader. Although I can see that you all have, whether motivated by commutes or whether motivated by familial love or what, but you have really worked to meet each other halfway. And I'm going to try to do that with your book picks as well. How does that sound? That sounds amazing. I'm so excited. It's possible that just nobody will be happy, but we're going to give it a try. (laughs) (laughs) I think I think we'll be happy. I trust you. Okay, I think the first book is the biggest stretch because this is a straight up much anticipated novel. However, this is an untold story. 
And I believe that the best way to read the untold story, I'm just going to keep using that phrase, like I'm a marketing professional. (laughs) The best way to read this untold story of a scientist, I think right now is in this novel. And so I really think that hopefully, Brent, that will be a compelling reason for you to want to read this book. And it's the new Barbara Kingsolver, actually. Have you read anything by her, either of you? I adore Barbara Kingsolver. I love her. And actually, my favorite book of hers is her nonfiction, Animal Vegetable uh, Mineral. Yeah, you actually actually got that right the first time. It's Animal Vegetable Miracle. And I wondered if that would be a good one to recommend to you. But since you already got to it, Ashley, Brent, have you read it? No, I have not. Okay. Do you think, do you think he would like it, Ashley? Um, Dad, it's about food. So (laughs) (laughs) that's a solid end for you. But yeah, no, she, um, she, (laughs) you can do taste testing. There are recipes, but she like goes to her, her homestead in Kentucky. Is that correct? Anne? and she like just wants to live locally off what she can grow and produce and buy from her local community. And it's all about local food and the ecosystems. And it's a really, really good book. And I think they did it for a year before everybody was doing everything for a year and then writing books about it. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, actually, when I was teaching in grad school, I actually taught that book or parts of it to my students. So it's, it's phenomenal. And as I recall, she weaves through the science. Like, yeah, this is where we are as a culture. This is what we're doing to the land. This is why it matters not to eat food that was shipped an average of 1500 miles before you consume it. Like we want to eat what's in our backyard. Yeah, dad, I've got it on my shelf. I'll bring it camping this weekend. I'll give it a whirl. <laughs> <laughs> so Barbara Kingsolver's newest book is called Unsheltered. And I read it while we went camping this fall. This is a historical novel. And so I know that's another one of your checkboxes. And it's about a woman in science. I'm holding my advanced copy right now. I'm going to read you a little bit of Barbara Kingsolver's letter about it. But first, let me tell you that this is historical, but it has two timelines. One is almost right now, and it's very explicitly set in a landscape, especially politically, that you would recognize as being very contemporary if you were to read this now. The other timeline is set in the 1870s, which Kingsolver describes as a banner year for dangerously uncertain times. She tells the story of two families who are both navigating real changes in ideas and also their family life and their work. And these two families are united because they both live in houses that are literally falling down at the corner of 6th and Plum in Vineland, New Jersey. So in the 1870s, Charles Darwin's works were being published for the first time. And many people had very strong feelings about that and plays into the dangerously uncertain times that Kingshover was talking about. She says in her letter that she really wanted an American scientist whose story she could represent in the pages. So she went looking and this was where I'm going to start reading. She said that she happened across Mary Treat, an important Darwin correspondent whose work is virtually unknown. I called the historical society in Vineland, New Jersey, where her papers are kept. And the curator said, you won't believe what we've got. She was right. Mary was a marvelous character and Vineland, New Jersey had more real life intrigue than I could use in several novels. Kingsolver says she has a contemporary family and a 19th century family, and they go in alternating chapters, and they're both coping in the brave, sweet, and ridiculous ways people try to deal with a world that's falling apart. This book also does something really interesting structurally that I've never seen done. The last words of a chapter that follows one timeline become the title of the chapter. It's like 150 years apart, and it's just a really interesting construct, and it really 
hits home to the reader, like, oh, these people live in different times in the same place, practically, but in very different times, but they're dealing with the same things. The story about Mary Treat, which really hasn't been told in the pages of a book, is so fascinating about the work she does and how important her research was to Darwin. They corresponded and she sent him her experiments and what it was like to be an iconoclastic scientist way ahead of your time in Vineland, New Jersey in the 1870s. I think this has something for both of you and I really want to know what you think. What do you think? That sounds incredible and I want to buy it like right now. (laughs) That sounds amazing. I think what you said about telling the story from, you know, 150 or so years apart and they're dealing with the same things, that is so true. And having a historical kind of context for things just really shows you we've had a lot of changes, but things have not changed all that much either at the same time. It sounds amazing. I'm really excited for it. What do you think, Brent? Yeah, no, it sounds good. I was just sitting here thinking about that going, yeah, I think I'd be very much interested to read that. It's a nice, hefty novel. It's 466 pages. So I hope after waiting for one of your favorite authors, Ashley, that you will at least be occupied for a few days. Probably a couple of nights for her. (laughs) Two hours, no big deal. Yeah. Me, it'll be a month. (laughs) Surely you all have read The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. I have, and I think I gave my copy to my parents for them to read, but I don't know that they did yet. I think mom did, and I read I read a little bit and then put it down and forgot about it. <laughs> <laughs> but now I see it in the bookstores going, ah, oh, I probably should have finished reading that. <laughs> you definitely should have. Do you still have it? Yeah, you should. Wait, did you get rid of it? I don't know. there are so many copies in print i'm sure you can find another one i i feel like that's one of those books that everyone has heard about and if you haven't and you're listening go look it up it's gotten so much coverage and for very good reason and it's an excellent book and it really combines a lot of different genres you have history and science and memoir and biography and you are probably affected by the immortal life of henrietta Lacks that lives on in her gila cells and it's probably worth picking up Okay, what about The Radium Girls by Kate Moore? Oh, yes. (laughs) Ashley got me the book on one of my next ones to start reading. Excellent. Have you read it, Ashley? I have not, um, but he talks about it a lot. I thought I thought you'd already read it based on the, how much you talk about it, but I have picked it up, looked at it, and put it back down. You know, say, "Oh, I'll wait till later to buy it because I have so many books now to read." Uh, That's now never that an excuse it, not to buy. A book. <laughs> <laughs> All right. How about Before the Fallout by Diana Preston? I have not heard of this one. Uh, nothing. Preston is a historian, and she's written a lot of history, but most of her work doesn't focus so much on the sciences as this one does. But this is the history of the nuclear fission bomb. She draws a line and explores a lot of the lesser-known, often-forgotten scientific discoveries that happened in between Marie Curie discovering radium in 1898 and her observation that radioactivity has a connection to atomic potential. Does that make any sense science-wise? Yes. No, I don't know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And it all stems from the elements and, and whether they have unstable isotopes or not. If you <laughs> so say there, so, Dad. So there we go. I'm going to trust you on <laughs> that, Brent. <laughs> so it was only 47 years later that Hiroshima happened. And it blows my mind looking back that it was less than 50 years between one and the other. In this book, she explores, she calls it the human chain reaction reaction. 
that led from Marie Curie's discovery to Little Boy in Hiroshima. So this is biography and history, and there are some what-if scenarios that she also plays around with. So you see the people you know, like Albert Einstein and Emperor Hirohito and Robert Oppenheimer and Hitler, but you also see some lesser-known people from history, including a woman or two. Brent, I am wondering if you already know everything in this book backwards and forwards, but I do wonder if the what-if idea she explores here might put an interesting twist on it. I believe it would. I mean, it sounds like it. Similar content, but different approach. How does this sound to you, Ashley? This sounds incredible. You know, I, I actually just finished reading a re- really, really short biography of Marie Curie. And like, you know, of course you learn all about the bombs over Japan and history class, but there's no, I don't know anything about the in-between stuff. And the fact that you said there's a few lesser known characters, I really, really am excited by that. Okay. I'm thinking, do you all know, have you read The Mercury 13 by Martha Ackman? No. This book came out in 2003 before all the books with girl in the title. Actually, can we stop and talk about that? Like my coworkers never get called boy at work, but you know, be like, oh, the girl's upstairs. So yeah, this book titling phenomenon where these really important women of science are reduced to being called girl. It's a little, it's a little problematic. I think I get a little bit touchy about it, but it does sell. And it's kind of like all the pictures of books with women's backs on them, but not their, not their faces. (laughs) (laughs) Like, Like, can we show a woman's face and not just like a disembodied part? I think the subject matter has been really exciting and the titling has been, The same, the same, the same. Radium Girls, Rise of the Rocket Girls, Code Girls. There's, yeah, there's a lot of it. I wish we would move past it a little bit. So this was before they realized that girl was going to be a publishing phenomenon. And so it's called the Mercury 13. It was at the time the untold story of the 13 women who underwent astronaut training at the deservedly famous Loveless Foundation. We haven't heard so much about the women, but they took the same tests as the men and had much of the same training and went through the same rigorous program. And sometimes their scores and results were better. But of course, it wasn't talked about because this was actually a secret program for a long time. And the women obviously did not go to space. This book tracks the history leading up to the event, this program, why it had to be a secret and how these women were treated by their fellow astronauts and scientists. Even though these women didn't go to space like they trained for, they did go on to enter a wide variety of interesting careers. We get to see what they pursued with that training, where they ended up, what kind of lives they ended up leading. It's a really interesting look at the possibilities for women who had that kind of training and noted potential at this time. How does that sound? It sounds amazing. And I'm a little mad that I didn't know about this already. I'm ready to read it. So let's go get it. (laughs) (laughs) What I'm hearing is let's go to the bookstore. Always down. Oh, that sounds good. I was also thinking of the book about the cholera epidemic by Stephen Johnson called The Ghost Map. I don't know if that's one you're familiar with, but it's a puzzle and it's a story of how London started to believe because of this minister slash doctor, Jon Snow, that maybe this horrible epidemic wasn't caused by foul odors and things beyond their controls, but something in the water that they could do something about. So at first he was crazy, but he charted the spread of the disease. That's the ghost map of the title, and he changed the tide of public opinion. And Brent, if you want to dive into more medical science, this could be an interesting way to do it because it does go beyond the medical science. Yeah, it does. Sounds really great. Yeah, that sounds amazing. All right. Ashley, of those books, what do you think you'll read next? 
Oh, this is a tough call, but I think I'm going to have to go with the Mercury 13 because I just cannot believe that there was this whole program where they trained female astronauts, but yet like nobody knows about it and they didn't get to go to space. That's it's incredible. And I really need to know more about that. Brent, what about you? I'm thinking the same thing, either that or before the fallout. Oh, well, um, buddy, read both of them. All right. Maybe I could read both at the same time. Oh, bless. Please don't do that. <laughs> I can't wait to hear how that goes. <laughs> thank you all so much for talking books with me today. Oh, thank you, Anne. Oh, thank I had, you. I had so much fun. Yeah, this has been great. I appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Ashley and Brent, and I'd love to hear what you think they might enjoy reading next. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 155, and it's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. Readers, here's a peek at what we have coming your way next Tuesday. It's another good one. I don't like dust jackets so much that my first book had one and I hated it. So in my contract, I had that it could not have a book jacket. It had to be just a naked book. I wonder how often that happens in a contract. I'm guessing not terribly often. (laughs) I'd love to hear more about your dust jacket philosophy. Well, when I realized like, oh, these books are so beautiful underneath, I kept like a box full of my dust jackets for about a year. And then I realized... I'm never going to put these back on. Like I'm a grown up. I'm allowed to get rid of them. So now I take all the dust jackets off of any books, unless they're just like unbelievably gorgeous. Every now and then that happens. Big magic is gorgeous. So I keep that one on, but for everything else, I take it off because I enjoy my book better that way. If you enjoy looking at your book better with the dust jacket on, or you have your own reasons, you should totally do that. I would never tell someone this is the way to be like the way to be is the way that you're going to be able to find your books the best, the way you're going to be able to enjoy your books the best. So there's no wrong. I think there's no wrong. Like, who cares? It's just a book. Subscribe now so you don't miss next week's episode in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Overcast, Spotify, and more. We will see you next week. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Pogle. That is Ann with an E, B is in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. For more reading inspiration all week long, check out my blog, modernmrsdarcy.com. Readers, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to support it, please share it with a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or buy or borrow a copy of my new book, I'd Rather Be Reading, for yourself or for a friend. Thanks to the people who make this show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenner Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. 
Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. <laughs>